listening to Sidewalk Confessionals. My name is Jeremy. And I'm Caleb. And today we are joined by a really special guest. Uh, she holds multiple licenses. Her name is Kat Maddock. Um, today we're talking more specifically about her license in, is it license in psychology or psychiatry therapy? Hi. Yes. So um, I have a an LPC, which is a licensed professional counseling license. And uh, my master's degree was in mental health counseling, and I have a bachelor's in aging and psychology. Okay. Yeah. And thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. I'm excited for this one. Um, so yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna dive into uh, into psychology, into kind of why you wanted to get into this. So so yeah, what made you want to get into psychology? So um, that would have been. I was probably 11 or 12 years old um, when I first, I really discovered I had an acute talent with my peers um, in, I guess it was an empathetic skill I didn't know I had, but I was developing, but I listened and my friends would come to me and it just seemed that when there was a problem or something going on in school between us or, you know, I was sort of the go-to person. my home life had a huge effect on my interest in psychology. I was terribly um, disturbed as a child. Um, I had problems since the time I was four years old with mental health, um, mostly anxiety issues at that point in time. And so by the time I was uh, 11 or 12, honestly, I was going through puberty and I just, I hated my parents. I, I, I hated them and I realized at about that age that I was at least I thought, but I thought I was smarter than them and I kind of knew how crazy they were. Of course, I didn't know exactly what was wrong, but I knew there was something wrong. And um, so yeah, there was a genuine curiosity in me from that time going forward that I needed to learn as much as I could. I wanted wanted to know everything I could about the human brain, the mind, how it worked. And um, and then the interest just grew. I started studying psychology when I was in high school. I was a junior in high school, and I took it for two years, junior, senior year. I had a wonderful professor, and he really cemented the deal for me. He was the one who influenced me the most in terms of academia and in terms of you know having mentors around you and teachers around you. And he was a professor in philosophy and psychology, and he. Uh, yeah, he really got me motivated to do the work. And so when I left high school, I was sure of what I wanted. I went to college knowing I wanted to study the mind. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. That is, it's really fascinating how the brain works, how all of the mental issues, you can actually, I think it's really cool physiologically, how you can map mental disorders to like overactive or inactive parts of the brain. Uh, things like that. Oh yeah. A lot of people I know there's a certain stigma about, you know, mental health being sort of like a soft science or something like that because psychology it's just a bunch of talking, right? But so much of it does overlap with the ever developing field of neurochemistry and, you know, the the actual f- physical structure of the brain. Um and it, yes. So there's a lot a lot going on there. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, kind of falling in line with that. My sister is actually really interested in in that, the physiology, uh, more so of 
psychology. Um, she's been interested in becoming a psychologist for a really long time. Is there any advice that you would give her or anyone else uh, looking to kind of get into that field of study? Mm-hmm. Psychology, therapy, psychiatry? So um, looking back, there are things I wish I had done. One of those things was a little bit more research into um, the program that I would take. So I would encourage someone to look at the licensure that they're going to get as well as the program that they're going to take to get it. Um, Depending on the state you're in and what the law requires for that state, um, your school will, you know, require you to do a certain amount of practicum hours. I would, if I could go back and do it again, I would have chosen a program that required me, um, you know, to do the things that I would have fit better with my lifestyle. So I would encourage the research of the program. I would also encourage you to spend some time, whether you're donating and volunteering your time, or if you can get an, uh, an internship in the summer, you know, while you're in school, get around the work as much as possible before you do the work because right. that's really how you're going to know if you if you fit right. in that right. milieu. And then there is there is a good piece of advice I can give about licensing. Um, in terms of job availability, if you're really looking to get hired and quickly, I would encourage anyone that's getting licensed to go for the clinical social work license, whether it be the LCSW or in a different state if it have a a different name. But the LPC license, just so you know, is not widely accepted in 50 states. In fact, in some states, they don't even recognize it for reciprocity. So the government will hire you. The Veterans Association will hire you if you have a clinical social work degree. And I, over the years, okay, you know, I'm 42 years old, and for the last 20 years in times when I've looked for jobs in mental health, when I was not working for myself, I had quite the time. And I was always asked, what's your licensure? Are you LCSW or you LPC? And when they find out you're LPC, you're no longer a candidate. It's, It's just what's written in their doctrine or their code or their statutes. So you will be more widely accepted and much easier you know, it'll be much easier for you to find work if you, you know, if you look into those things first. So I would, I would highly recommend that. I did not do any of what I've just. <laughs> um, what's, what's, uh, what's like, what's the difference between the LPC and the LCSW? Like what, what? Uh... So the way it was, the, how it was different. Um, I'm thinking about when I went to graduate school. So this is about, let's say, 2001. 2002, I went to graduate school. I graduated 2004, the summer. So yeah, it's probably a one I started. And so clinical social work traditionally was more about clerical work, paperwork, administrative work. You know, clients come into you, you're a caseworker and you have a little bit of clinical skill. So not only can you handle the casework part of your job, but you can also provide counseling, right? The LPC is strictly clinical. Diagnostics, assessment, clinical counseling, psychotherapy. We're not your caseworker. We are. We, we have no jurisdiction over that paperwork. We don't learn the paperwork. We don't. So I'm not the person as an LPC who is most likely going to be hired um, for any job that the LCSW would get. Right. However, the LCSW can get any job I can get. Right. So the LCSW is kind of the catch-all. Yes. 
In fact, it turned out to be that way over the years. But I'll tell you something, the lobbying that goes on in Washington, the reason clinical social work has that is because of the lobbying. They had more money. There was more lobbying in Washington. You know, this is the information and this is hearsay because this is stuff I'm hearing and I'm I'm saying it here and I'm passing it on to you. But, you know, when it comes down to it, you want to look at the mental health system in general. It, it's always going to come down to the money. And yeah, so, yeah. and if, and you, and just another point to tag on to that, if the government really wants to help veterans and they really want to take care of their men and women in uniform, they would reconsider who is, is hireable and who is a legitimate candidate to serve those people. Because I tell you, in my private practice, I serve my military. I serve those people. And it has irritated me for many years that I couldn't get a job at the VA because it would have fulfilled me and it would have it, it would have done good for everybody involved. Let's just right. put it that way. Right. So, so uh, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, um, so is there anything, you know, is there anything else uh, kind of going on in the world of psychology that, that has your interest right now? I mean, you kind of touched on how the lobbying is, the lobbying in Washington is the reason kind of the degrees or the licensing works the way it does, but is there anything else uh, that's kind of caught your interest right now? Um, certainly that mental health is not discussed enough. Yeah. That's what's so interesting about it, is that we're surrounded in this country, in this world, frankly, but we're surrounded right now by mental health issues, by mental health disorders, by the byproducts of mental health disorders in families. Right. We are, we're, it's everywhere, and yet it's not the discussion yeah. that our higher-ups are having. It's not the discussion that our lawmakers are having, and if they are having it, they're certainly not taking action, are they? Right. Yeah. Right. It almost, it almost feels like they're not taking it seriously. No, mm -hmm. they're not. They're not. And actually... Um, recently, I don't know if you watch Viceland. I don't know if that's a station that you ever watch, but you'd be probably interested to take a look. And there was one little interview, little bit they did about mental health and gun control. And um, I didn't call in, right? I didn't, um, I didn't follow through with the thoughts I had about that one little bit, but. If anyone believes that those two are not related, you know, school shootings, gun violence, if, if anyone tries to tear those two apart as if they don't coexist, then they're really not paying attention. Right. And, it, you know, um, so, yeah, there's a discussion, there's a conversation that we all, be, we all need to be having more frequently. Yeah. And that is, what are we going to do to take care of our people? Right. What are we going to do to take care of our citizens? You know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. There's a, I don't know who said this. I don't know where I'm getting this quote from, but someone said that, um, I think I heard this on the news regarding mental health, is that we need to, we need to be uncomfortable. These things should make us uncomfortable. There's no way that it's going to change if it doesn't make everyone uncomfortable because no one wants to be uncomfortable. Um, and that's the reason that they said that, you know, people avoid this kind of thing. So you kind of touched on this. Uh, you kind of touched on school shootings and mental health issues, uh, you know, in the media and in the public. Um, 
So we're going to get a little bit controversial now. There's a couple topics that I actually have written on this paper that we decided before we started recording that um, would be better suited for episodes all their own. Um, So we're just going to talk about one right now. Uh, What do you think about not only the school shootings themselves and the situations that lead to those, but the media coverage of those school shootings and the public response to tragedies like that? Well, in terms of media response, I can highlight one specific event. Most recently was the school shooting down in Dade County. Um, I was a teacher in Broward County in South Florida for a while. Um, The Tri-County area is... You know, I was down, I lived, grew up there, I was, you know, 33 years in Florida. And it's, um, it was my experience uh, when I was a teacher, we had two, two lockdown situations when I was a teacher. One, I was on the elementary side, and the other, I was on the middle school side. They were about a year apart. Um, sh- school shootings are, are personal to me. I love kids. I love teaching, I love counseling, I love, you know, growing families, and um, it's something, if it's on the news, that's one thing I will watch. I don't watch much news, but if, if there's if there's a, a shooting and it's you know, involving schools, I tend to be quite interested in that stuff. So there was a shooting down in Dade, and, and the reactivity of the community and um, the outpouring of support and everything that came together after that shooting um, I felt like it was a little bit of a circus on TV. Yeah. I was watching. Um, they had like a little, um, what what did they call it? I don't know the name that they called it, but they invited, you know, uh, Marco Rubio and and they invited um, Nelson and they invited um, a couple of the other congressmen, the governor, like you know, Florida representatives. They 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 invited the the Florida you know, politicians, and they sat, you know, a dozen school children, high school students, or, you know, on the stage, and they allowed these students to have an open forum, a Q&A, and they allowed these students to ask these politicians questions. And um, I have to say, I was a little disappointed in the choreography or the orchestration of this event, because what it turned out to be was more of like a, um, you know, like a tomato throwing. It was like a mudslinging. And, and, and these teenagers were standing up one by one with these genuine, beautiful things that, that they had to say and had to share. And, and really, you know, I don't, they're not at fault at all. I don't blame them for anything that, that they felt or did. But they carried on in a very defensive, very aggressive, combative way and, and were kind of throwing daggers at these politicians and, and kind of buffooning them and making them look stupid a little bit. Right. I don't know that that was proactive. I don't know that that got us anywhere more than where we were. Right, right. So the approach was a little bit saucy and, and then the media covered it so well. I mean, the advertisements for this particular sit down or what do they call it, a, a town hall? That's what they call mm-hmm. it, a town hall. And um, it was an assembly basically, a community assembly. Right. And there were several hundred people that showed up, probably thousands and just to listen. But it was um, widely publicized and I think if I had the opportunity to get something that you know, out there, if I had that opportunity, I might have 
rehearsed it a few times, or I may have tried to, you know, tone it down and remove the hostility because there was a lot of hostility coming from these children and their parents. Right. Well, I mean, that, no, I see it. That's can you can you blame them? Absolutely not. Yeah. You can't. It's a hard thing. And this is the other thing I don't like about it. You're giving politicians now, or you're giving your your opposition, oh, let's say, a reason animal. not to help you. Right, you're, right. Because we end up being, you know. Right, because they feel, you know, you're going to be hostile toward me. Why should I help you? Yeah. And we can all say, well, that's not right and that's not ethical. But we're human. Right. And we all suffer with the human condition. So if I'm standing on a stage in front of thousands and I've got millions of viewers at home and Marco Rubio is only 10 feet away from me, and the only thing that I can do is chop him up and insult him so that the rest of the audience laughs, am I going to get my needs met? Am I going to meet him halfway? Can we work together? Probably not at that point is, is my point. Right. So we do have to play in the sandbox together and we do yeah. have to get the, yeah. yeah. I didn't like that the media turned that into what it did. And I'm sure there's plenty of people at home that thought, no, those politicians deserved what they heard. And you know what? I think they did. I just don't know if we got anywhere with that. Right. Yeah. Right. You got to, you got to, yeah. You're human, so it's hard to set your emotions aside. But, you know, if you're yelling at someone, it's going to make them not want to help you at all, whether it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. It's shaming them and embarrassing yeah. them. And right, right. We know how people get when you embarrass them. Sometimes it turns right into anger. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Were you going to say something? You look like you were going to say something. Oh, well, I was just thinking about, um, personally, I'm a little disappointed in how I've seen school shootings treated in the media, especially as in regards to the politicians, how when it gets handled by the politicians, the human aspect of the issue is like addressed briefly and then it boils down. It's just an argument about gun control. And that's that's all that they can talk about is whether or not to reform the laws. And the 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 human side of it then becomes totally ignored. And it just becomes a hot button political issue where you, you, you might not even necessarily know what the politician authentically thinks about what's going on because they have a certain political stance which they're supposed to hold and they're just firing off for their party. Yeah. You know? It's because they don't, yeah, it's because no one wants And yet, and the, the treatment of, as we're trying to discuss now, the mental health side of it, uh, how is this uh, a social issue? How is this. Uh, a community issue is completely overlooked. They didn't even discuss mental health in that open forum. They never talked about how we can enhance our families, how we can communicate better with our children, how we can listen better as teachers and administrators. Why are we not listening? Why are we always lecturing kids when there's a school shooting? They don't need more lecture. That's not what they need. If you ask any kid who's ever walked into a school with a gun, and then this is going to sound brash, but if you, you walked, excuse me, if you talked to anyone who has ever committed such a crime, if they're still alive and they haven't taken themselves out, at the end of these shootings, some of, some of these kids, they just commit suicide. You know, mm-hmm. you don't get to hear at that point. It's too late. Right. But nobody was talking about counseling. Nobody was talking about putting any form of enhanced guidance. Uh, No provisions were talked about for children in elementary, middle, or high school. If anything, they're talking about cutting budgets and taking things like guidance counseling away from kids. They're taking that support away from the schools because it costs them money. And believe me, it would be money well spent. 
Yeah. Okay, I mean, it would be lives. We're talking about saving lives mm-hmm. here by right. just giving our kids more support, making it available. And I'm not saying that's going to cure the whole problem, but it, I can tell you one thing. It's a good start. It's a great start. You're yeah. dang right. You're darn right. It's a good start. Yeah. Yeah. I really think that we need to start addressing these issues at the root uh, and not treating the symptoms or we're, we're yeah. looking too much after the fact. We're looking too much after the fact at the school shootings and we're like, oh, school shootings happen because people have access to guns or school shootings happen because, I don't know, these people are crazy and they leave it at that. But they don't think, you know, how, how every person needs to sit back and say, am I part of the problem? or am I part of the solution? And how am I part of the problem? Or even better, how am I part of the problem? Because inevitably we are all have our fingers dipped somewhat in the problem. We are all of this human community. So we're all responsible for each other and the things that are happening between each other. How am I part of the problem? And how can I be part of the solution? Yeah, you have to think these things don't just happen. You know, if you're a kid who thinks that the only way to express yourself or the only way to get the attention that you want or whatever, whatever it is, you think that the only way to do that is to go and kill your classmates, you know, make a huge public scene. There's there's some underlying problem. It could be with that person specifically. It could be with their home life. It could be bullying, anything like that. There's some underlying pain, frankly, that needs to be addressed and mm-hmm. it's hard i mean it's like i keep saying it's, it's it's really really uncomfortable anyone who's been to therapy knows that it's very uncomfortable um or at least it can be especially to talk about things like that mm-hmm. and yeah i feel like i mean how many kids how many kids would just even be open about going to a therapist to talk about how they want to kill people right yeah in fact a lot i, I feel like a lot of could you imagine being that person who's having homicidal thoughts for whatever reason, how can you talk about that with anybody? I would be afraid of the judgment that would immediately come with that. I yeah, feel well, like there's another... this huge stigma that happens. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I'm thinking about killing people. Oh my God, dangerous weirdo, stay away. Right. Who's yeah. going to be the person to dive in and say, okay, what's going on here? How can we help? Right. It's not weird that you feel that way. We need to de- destigmatize it. You're absolutely, you hit the nail on the head. I think, I think that <laughs> that the stigmatization of it makes people not want to talk about it. You know, if there's an outlet there, if there's someone there, a therapist, a family member, a friend who says, you know, who someone is comfortable even saying something like that to, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in, if I'm we're, in XYZ, you know. If we're ever going to expel our demons, I think we need to become a lot more comfortable with the idea of talking about them or admitting them. Yeah. Well, that's poignant, gentlemen. We'll have to revisit that. And (laughs) you can make me your first guinea pig. (laughs) I'm one of those people who, because of the stigma, would not open up about things that happened to me. You know, and then I made a, a life for myself where all I did was fix things or help things or grow things in other people or, or in other families, you know. And um, I, I have an intuition for it and I also have a, a life experience for it, but I've suffered through many of the things that a lot of my clients come with. And so, yes, I have it on, you know, I see it from 
from all ends. I've been a I've been a counselor, but I've also been a patient. You right. know, and as part of and you may or may not know, but as part of your training, you know, you will have to become a patient at some point in your clinical training, mm-hmm. you know, to understand what that feels like. Right. Yeah. So that you know yeah. you know what the people you're de- dealing with may be feeling. Yeah. Some programs require it, some just um recommended but right. actually some programs will require you to do something like that yeah yeah i mean that makes perfect sense yeah so we're gonna wrap it up here because i think we've uh, i think we've been going for a little while uh we are going to uh cat will be back on for for more episodes i think i hope um yeah we're sure. gonna discuss more controversial topics and fun stuff like that but uh to close on hopefully kind of a positive note um what advice would you give anyone who thinks they might have a mental disorder or um, maybe some advice that would help them make the decision whether or not to get help? Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to someone you trust. Ask someone who would know. If you're in a school, if you're in an academic environment, I would suggest going to the psychology department and finding someone you can just sit down with and ask some questions. You can definitely go online and find a plethora of assessments, of of personal self-assessments you'd have access to where you can see if any of your symptoms were to match up. And go to the library, go to a bookstore. I Go to a bookstore and go to the psychology section and pick up a DSM. Yeah. Pick up a DSM-5. They just published it like two years ago. The new one came out, or maybe it was last year it came out. Uh, and um, and just figure it out. Yeah. You know, like really figure it out. And you don't have to be a licensed professional to know that you are suffering with something. Yeah. And uh, I would always encourage people um, to ask a lot of questions as much as, as you can. Just talk to people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so for those who don't know, Caleb and I, and obviously you know what the DSM is, but what what, yeah, what is that? you're right. So the, di- the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, the DSM. Yeah, yeah. Diagnostic and Statistical so that, Manual. It goes through... So this is our, bi- this is our go-to. Right, so if you were yeah. to come to me and I was going to assess you and give you a diagnosis, that's what I would use. Doctors, doctors use the ICD-9 or the ICD-10 now. Right. And so they'll come up with a code for the name of your disorder, just like I would go in the DSM and come up with a code number for yours. Okay. And it's it's not necessary to go back to the beginning and read DSM 1 through 4, although you might out of interest, because they, they're rendered defunct after the latest has been published, right? Um, I'll be honest. Practically speaking, I know right now that there are still clinicians that will diagnose outside of the DSM-5. They'll go back to the four revised. But yes, interestingly, you know, however many, every five, seven years, ten years, I'm not sure how how long it takes to put out a revision. But to be honest, the DSM-4, the three revised and the four are quite interesting. And I, I don't even know that I'm in agreement with the DSM-5 because they reformatted several of the diseases in terms of like where they're going to appear in the book and how they catalog them and where they fit. You know, 
I mean, they eliminated certain things altogether and just mm-hmm. turned it into something else, right? Yeah, they um, they combined two of, just as an example, I know one thing that changed was they combined two of the personality disorders where they used to be separate. Um, I know now with mood disorder, we used to always categorize mood disorders in one chapter and you'd find bipolar disorder in there. Now, bipolar disorder has its complete like own chapter. But there's, you know, growth and, and amendments and there's all changes. I mean, if you go back to some of the old uh, versions, you'll find where it says homosexuality is a disease and it's a mental disorder. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you'll, you, that's act, that, that's been published in the DSM at some point in time. I don't know if it was the three or the revised three or what. But so as a group, as the American Counseling Association, and the psychiatric association, as they you know go through time, yeah, they revise that book and they kind of change the codes and the criteria might change a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that was good. We covered some good material. Here. I do too. Um, we're going to be talking, like I said, we're going to be talking about some more uh, controversial topics and and other things like that. Yes, stay tuned um, because we are going to get spicy in the future. We are, we are. I said, I've said before that we're not going to cover anything controversial on this podcast, but I. Uh, I lied. Yeah, I've, I've changed my opinion. I think that now more than ever, it's absolutely necessary. Um, so yeah, you've been listening to Sidewalk Confessionals. Happy listening and have a nice day. Bye.